welcome back to a new episode of For the Love of Weather podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss all things weather and how they can impact our daily lives. We hope that you leave this episode and every episode that you listen to loving the weather just that little bit more. Hi, I'm Mitra Dishema. Hello, I'm meteorologist and weather presenter Ashling, and today we get to reintroduce Dr. Simon Lee, bit of a rock star in our field. Well known. Oh, Thanks okay. so much for coming back to us. <laughs> we obviously you didn't put you up. You're very welcome. But just uh, briefly reintroduce you again. But anyone who's in climate and weather probably knows who you are already. But um, yes, but in our first episode, we did. We have already chatted to you, um, which we figured out just before this started was November 2022. I believe so. Yeah. Wild. Crazy. But Simon is currently postdoctoral research scientist in the Department of Applied Physics and Applied Mathematics, APAM brilliant name, yeah. at Columbia University in the city of New York, where you work on a stratospheric, tropospheric coupling, large-scale climate dynamics and variability and subseasonal seasonal predictability and its applications. That may sound like quite mouthful, but all really, really important stuff. You're also the co-editor and chief, uh, chief of our beloved Ormet Weather Journal, but yeah. you are soon to move to St. Andrews. So we're going to get you back over this side of the pond again to be a lecturer. Yes, I'm going to end up with quite a strange accent that's like English, Scottish and New York. Why not? You know. Why not? <laughs> it's great. Um, yeah, so without further ado, I'm just going to go take it right back again. And I'm going to ask you this question again. When did you first think to yourself, I think I might love the atmosphere. I'm probably going to work in weather. It, it, it is a good question. I always feel like I've got a different answer to it each time each time I think about it. But I, I think it all stems back to growing up in Harrogate in North Yorkshire and being in, in the north, the best part of the UK, obviously, and uh, being kind of exposed to the weather coming in off the Pennines and just, you know, it was an inescapable fact of family hikes on a weekend that the weather was something we were going out there and experiencing. And also living near several large reservoirs i just always used to enjoy watching the you know the droughts and the floods and the the fluid dynamics at play and i think it all kind of went went from there really so i'm just going to jump straight to it recently we've had some nacreous clouds we have. mother of pearl you, well stratospheric clouds absolutely stunning to look at can you tell us a little bit about what's going on there yeah, so they, they are potentially one of the most beautiful clouds that you'll see. In some ways, they, they're a little similar to uh, noctilucent clouds that you sometimes see in the summer, um, except noctilucent clouds form in the summertime mesosphere. That's the, we're in the troposphere, stratosphere, mesosphere is the, the, the third layer of the atmosphere, whereas nacreous clouds form in the lower stratosphere and in winter. The similarity with uh, noctilucent clouds is that they're typically visible only it kind of near sunrise and near sunset when the sun is just near the horizon it's kind of angled up uh, to illuminate them um, and what's fascinating about polar stratospheric clouds is that they form within the cold air of the stratospheric polar vortex which is not normally cold enough in the arctic or located over the uk as it has been uh, in the last few months I wasn't lucky enough to see them. I'm absolutely gutted. I only saw pictures of them. I kept looking out the window and I was like, please. No. However, did, though. yeah, I did. No, honestly. But yeah, so <laughs> absolutely amazing. Uh, and actually, interestingly, those of people sent me pictures. They were like, oh my God, what are these? And I was, 
equally jealous and wanting more all at the same time. It's like mine written exactly like that. They're way better. But, you know, there is another side to them. Uh, Simon, do you want to just talk a little bit about um, why it might have actually been concerning to see them? So the reason, so they're a beautiful sort of cloud, but they have a kind of a, a darker side in essence. And so uh, they actually serve as a catalytic surface for the formation of chlorine monoxide in the stratosphere. And chlorine monoxide is a radical that can go on in the presence of ultraviolet radiation, sunlight, to react with ozone and destroy ozone. And so that's the, the the darker side of a polar stratospheric cloud. They are a, a natural phenomenon in themselves, and there is always going to be some ozone destruction as a result of them as, as part of the natural chemical behavior of the stratosphere. Obviously, the, 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 the bad side, the anthropogenic side, is that we have put extra chlorine into the stratosphere through uh, CFCs. And so actually thinking about this, this is why we see the ozone hole in the Antarctic and not in the Arctic. Uh, so this is because the, the cold temperatures that you need to form a polar stratospheric cloud only typically occur in the Antarctic polar vortex, which is much stronger and colder than the Arctic polar vortex, because it's less disturbed by large scale waves in the atmosphere that are produced by the essentially by the continents in the northern hemisphere. I'm just having that lovely feeling of learning something new. I never really thought about that. How much colder is the uh, Antarctic compared to the Arctic? Quite substantially in the sense that we, we don't really see these things like sudden stratospheric warmings don't really occur in the Antarctic polar vortex. They've occurred once or twice, but these large-scale events that, that rise raise the temperature of the polar vortex by 50 Celsius or so in just a few days that we see almost every other winter in the Northern Hemisphere never really occur in the southern hemisphere and so you really are much closer in essence to the the radiative equilibrium just that cooling that occurs because the antarctic vortex is facing away from the sun you're much closer to that in the southern hemisphere than you are in the arctic where the, the effect of these waves warms the vortex up quite a lot and pushes it actually further away from where it would be in radiative equilibrium with the the polar night so fascinating that's mad how did we not cover that in the last podcast? I know. I was like, <laughs> how are we like, like, that's so fascinating. I feel like we didn't ask enough so, questions in last time, Ash. <laughs> I know, seriously. So three things, right? So first of all, the, the stratosphere, the, the polar vortex doesn't normally wiggle as far south as here. So that was a pretty big yeah. disturbance. Second of all, the distribution of those nacreous clouds, so how widespread they are, was that unusual? Yeah, so what, what's unusual is that you need the vortex to have to be cold. You need it to be strong and cold to have polar stratospheric clouds, but you also need to have disturbed it away from the pole in order for you to see them in somewhere like Europe and the, and the UK. And to get both of the two to happen at the same time is quite hard because normally when you disrupt the vortex away from the pole, there's a warming of the vortex and a weakening of it. And so kind of what, what was useful here was that this was happening when the vortex had previously been unusually cold and it, the, the disruption happened pretty quickly. It just nudged that vortex quite fast away from the Arctic. And this occurred right in the middle of winter when there's the least radiative heating of the Arctic. So it, things were able to remain cold. So it, we're, we're moving now at a time where we're gaining like quite a lot of daylight. 
So we're sort of spinning towards, have we, we've gone from the perihelion, is that right? So it's called when the sun is the closest, where the earth is closest to the sun, but it's faced away. So it's at its darkest side. So yes. we get, so how, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to the, the polar vortex? Talk about that this, and the temperature. And it's kind of, can be a bit counterintuitive to what you think. Well, this is the interesting kind of link between the, the kind of the pure radiative aspect to it. The thing that's just governed by the strength of the sun over the pole and also the dynamics. And so the, the way the waves interact with the vortex has a, in the Arctic in particular, where the, the amount of waves interacting with the vortex is quite high, has a really large say in how the vortex evolves. And so actually in some winters, you can have an, a complete loss of wave activity from the vortex and it can actually cool quite substantially into the spring, kind of almost against the seasonal cycle in the radiation from the sun. And so sometimes you can have an unusually cold vortex uh, right out into sort of March, and it can be unusually strong into March and April time. And we actually saw that in, in the spring of 2020. But, you know, there was something else going on in the spring of 2020 that I believe was kind of a distraction for, for a lot of people. I know. Um, so, so that happened then. Uh, but typically what we would expect to see is that the vortex begins to warm up as the sun starts to return to the Arctic. That's essentially that average of that. But the amount of variability from one winter to another in this is, is quite large. And there's still enough time between now and the spring to have other events like sudden stratospheric warmings. So Simon, I'm just going to jump back to the clouds. We were talking about ozone and the nacreous clouds. Can you tell us just a little bit more about the sort of natural cycle of the ozone and how it's all linked to the stratosphere and all that? One of the things that's interesting about the, the polar vortex is because it has this strong jet of westerly winds surrounding it, it, it kind of serves as, that serves as a transport barrier. So air can't mix across the edge of the vortex. And so the air within, a, within the polar vortex ends up pretty isolated from the, from the rest of the stratosphere. There's a lack of horizontal mixing on average. And so that air within the vortex can progressively cool through the winter in the absence of any stratospheric warming events. And this is particularly what we see over the Antarctic, strong cooling within that vortex and a very strong horizontal transport barrier. And then in the spring, as the sun starts to return to the polar region, what you have is kind of the legacy of this cold mass of air from the winter, which is cold enough to support the formation of polar stratospheric clouds. And you have the return of sunlight, which can favor the occurrence of chemical reactions. And so then what you start to see is the reaction occurring on the surface of the polar stratospheric clouds that produces uh, chlorine monoxide, the radical. And then that can go on in the presence of ultraviolet radiation to destroy ozone. And so that's why we see the ozone hole in the Antarctic in Antarctic spring around September time. And that's also why we see the least ozone in the Arctic, typically uh, in some of these strong vortex winters can occur in, in March, April time. But that's much rarer and it's never really enough to qualify as an ozone hole. It's just an, a, a, a low amount of ozone. We saw that in the spring of 2020, in the spring of 2011, and I believe the spring of 1990, these unusual winters where the vortex was very cold in the Arctic right through into the early spring. I think actually those years that you mentioned all had quite warm summers. Is there any link to that? 
I don't know if there's a particular link there. There is there's some recent research that has suggested a surprising link between the lower stratospheric vortex in the late spring, the way that breaks up, led by Nick Dunstone and the Met Office, and the evolution through the summer. But from a sample of three, I don't think that's enough to make a conclusive statement. So you're kind of talking a lot there about um like tele like teleconnections as well. Obviously, you're a little you're you're higher in the stratosphere. Do you think is there any link with El Nino? So we know there's been a very strong El Nino. So usually the the vortex in the in the Arctic, usually it's weaker than normal during El Nino. And that's actually in large part because El Nino favors a deepening of the Aleutian low pressure system that sits in the North Pacific. And that's the source of wave activity that can move upwards into the stratosphere and bash the vortex about and warm it up. And if you run climate model simulations, what you tend to see is more of these big, dramatic southern stratospheric warmings tend to occur more often in El Nino than in La Nina. But a fascinating thing is that if you look at the historical record going back to, say, the 1950s, we've not really seen more southern stratospheric warmings in El Nino. We've seen about the same number in El Nino as in La Nina. And actually understanding that's a topic of current research, because we're not sure whether we just haven't seen enough years or whether the models are potentially biased in favor of doing this or, or whether something unusual is going on. I mean, we love weather and climate on this podcast, but when you hear about how something over the Pacific can impact something in the stratosphere and then it can even impact over in the UK and the weather, it's just like, it's the atmosphere is so amazing. Like just when you just talking about it, like it's so cool. It's so amazing how all these things are linked up. And the people who program this stuff, that's just blows my mind. I'm like, how, how do they? I don't know. It's crazy. This sort of this sort of thinking was one of the first things that got me interested in in weather was I think I heard, you know, a, a tropical cyclone, a hurricane in the Atlantic is going to transition into an extra tropical storm and that's going to cause some wind and rain in, in Yorkshire. And I remember thinking, but that's, you know, that's Florida and Britain. And and so the, I think these big scales and thinking about how the whole Earth system interacts is is fascinating. And it's it's kind of great to hear somebody say how great it sounds, because sometimes you're just frustrated with one sentence in the paper that you've written and you kind of forget the grander scheme of things so that's nice to hear um tell me something so we're you we so we're we're actually coming out of the depth of winter at the moment is there is great gains in the day although they still seem short as well do you exhale a little bit i like the so i like winter um, I like the i think the weather is more fun for the most part um i enjoy I enjoy how quiet the world feels in in the winter time, and how you can you can go out hiking and, and you don't see anyone else because you you only see the hardy few. You don't get those summer crowds, and so I, I do enjoy that side of winter. I don't enjoy the short daylight hours. Um, I think probably that's true for for most people. I, but you know, finishing work in the dark, starting work in the dark, it can be difficult. And um, so I do look forward to the longer day and these hours. Tell me, uh, since we last spoke to you, which November 2022, so I'm going to get over <laughs> Like, how have we managed to keep this podcast going? We're, we're chaos sometimes. Anyway, um, has, has there been many advancements made or is there any new little nuggets of information? You must have closed off maybe a paper or two um, in the last year, you know, you're coming 
you know transitioning into another job like what is there anything we know more or didn't know have you got any like little wonderful things that you're starting to focus on now that you didn't know before good question terrifying if i was unable to give a good answer to that wouldn't it um, <laughs> yeah I, like, I've actually been recently working less on on the stratosphere in sort of the last year, and I've been looking a lot more at uh, just large scale circulation patterns over North America called weather regimes, and uh, thinking about how to apply that classification year round because it tends to get used just in the just in the winter, and and you know that's only one that's a quarter of the year. So we we came up with this new way of looking at it year round. Uh, and recently, we've been thinking about how that links to things like long-term climate variability and change, how that might link to things like large-scale modulation of tornado outbreaks. Uh, that was the the paper I was working on before joining this podcast, uh, and 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 those sorts of aspects. So that that's been really interesting and, and kind of really exciting as well to engage with um, the the users at the end of it and see how people are, are applying this in in a forecasting perspective. I don't know the word weather regime. Is this going to be a new word I hear? I, I hopefully, if my paper succeeds, it, yeah. it's not a new, it's not a new concept. The idea of a weather regime. The the I guess the summary definition would be something like it's a a large scale, persistent, and recurrent weather pattern. And so, if you think of something like the North Atlantic Oscillation, the two phases of the North Atlantic Oscillation are effectively two of the North Atlantic's weather regimes. And another one would be something like Scandinavian blocking or an Atlantic ridge. So like the types of things that you see on a weather map. And so we've just been doing that for North America. Fascinating. We'll have to get you back on soon to talk Why about not? that aspect as well. <laughs> but we have you here to talk about the photovoltaic. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so we did touch on it. Everyone who's listening to this podcast will have listened to the previous podcast, but in case they haven't heard it, can you just explain a little? We've touched on what the polar vortex is, but can we touch a little bit about what a sudden stratospheric warming event would be and then maybe how that might impact the weather here in the UK? Yeah, so a, a, a sudden stratospheric warming, funnily enough, is an occasion when the stratosphere warms suddenly. Um, it was <laughs> actually discovered in the 1950s in Berlin, sort of by accident. Um, a, a group of scientists there were launching weather balloons that could go higher up into the stratosphere than, than ever before. And suddenly they discovered that the stratosphere had abruptly warmed in the middle of winter. And they called it in German, which I'm not going to try to pronounce, they called it an explosive warming of the wintertime stratosphere. Personally, I think we should have stuck with the word explosive. And it's actually quite hard to work out at what point it went from being explosive to sudden. But that's lost into the mists of time. Um, they they are natural events that occur about once every winter, once every other winter in the in the Arctic, and what they are is essentially a disruption of the westerly circulation of the polar vortex, and so these tend to these result in the the winds reversing from westerly into easterly winds, and when that occurs, that indicates that the Arctic is actually warmer than the mid-latitudes and equatorial regions in the stratosphere because you flip the temperature gradient to get those easterly winds. Um, and these are, these are huge planetary-scale disruptions to the stratospheric circulation. I think they're the most dramatic event in Earth's atmosphere on that scale. The temperature of the Arctic stratosphere can rise 50 Celsius or more in just a few days. They, they really are a, a, an explosive event. Um, and, and the reason that we talk about them a lot is because 
that disruption to that westerly circulation in the stratosphere can have a long-lasting influence on the weather in the troposphere. And that's particularly true over the North Atlantic. So after a sudden stratospheric warming occurs, we typically see a negative North Atlantic oscillation type pattern on average. And that's associated with an equatorward shift of the jet stream in the Atlantic that tends to lead places like Northwest Europe and the UK to be more susceptible to cold air outbreaks and less susceptible to strong mild Atlantic westerlies and, and windstorms and, and, and also have an impact on, on the weather in the Mediterranean, which tends to see milder weather and more rain uh, following an, a, a sudden warming. And what's interesting beyond, if that wasn't interesting enough, what's additionally interesting is that because they kind of, these SSWs can lock the atmosphere into this new state, essentially, once the southern stratospheric warming occurs, there's a typically a long lasting signal in the lower stratosphere for a weakened vortex. And that means that once one occurs, you have some sort of memory, you have an extended predictability of the coupled troposphere stratosphere system. And so one occurs and you know that on average for the next six weeks or so, there's going to be an increased risk of this sort of pattern and an increased risk of cold air outbreaks. And that's just cool. <laughs> it totally is, isn't it? <laughs> it totally is. So so we had uh, like a a little bit of a warming. Um, I'm trying to think when I last saw the nacreous clouds. So that obviously would have been signs of the disruption. And we've also just had a really cold uh, spell of weather as well. So is that uh, down to stratospheric warming? So this is where things are interesting. So at the end of December, you have this displacement of the vortex toward Europe, which results in the nacreous clouds, as you say. And it's interesting to think of those as like a visual indicator that some, something was up with the large scale circulation in the stratosphere. And then as we moved into the start of 2024, there was actually a very rapid warming of the polar stratosphere. However, because it didn't meet this technical criterion that we use for defining what's called a major southern stratospheric warming, that means that the winds at 60 degrees north and about 30 kilometers up in the atmosphere have to reverse to easterly for at least one day on average, technical criterion. Uh, that, that event only qualified as a minor warming, even though it was a huge warming of the stratosphere. And so that actually had, by the looks of things, an influence on the troposphere, favoured a, a high pressure system over Greenland and thereabouts, and probably played a role in why there's been cold air outbreaks over Northwest Europe and the UK in the last few days, few weeks, and over North America as well. That then evolved, and then actually, in the last couple of days, so around this January 16th or so, the winds do appear to have reversed in the stratosphere to meet that criterion for a major sudden warming. But that's just a technical criterion because it was a very weird event. The minor warming actually had more warming than the so-called major warming. And it actually appears that the minor warming may indeed have had more of an influence on the troposphere than the so-called major warming. Unusual event doesn't normally go like that. Uh, and actually, over the next few days, we're expecting to see the stratospheric vortex strengthen quite markedly. And um, so depending on how well this ages, we would expect to see the pattern in, in the northern hemisphere really just flip around and go from these simultaneous cold air outbreaks to much warmer conditions. 
So you've just described, you've given us the definition of what a major warming is. I'm not going to show you a page for fear of confusing myself. 10 hectopascals, 60 north, one daily. Thank you. What's a minor definition? It's not as rigorously defined. But you said well, but the, the warming is rapid. So what was the jump in temperature for the minor one? And what was the jump in temperature for the major one? And how long did the minor jump last for? So the the the, the minor warming really it was it was 30, 40 Kelvin degrees Celsius or so in, in a few days. It was it was the size of temperature jump that you normally see on average across the Arctic in a major warming. It just because of the way I'd say because of the way the cookie crumbled, it didn't result in the winds reversing too easterly at 10 hectopascals and 60 north. It, it took a huge chunk out of the strength of the vortex. It did generate easterlies in some parts of the stratosphere. And so that warming then kind of weakened and fluctuated around for the for the first few weeks of the year until a couple of days ago. And then there was this secondary warming that was much less, maybe only 20 degrees C or so. And then because the vortex had already been battered around and destroyed and there was a, a much weaker westerly circulation. That then finally and very briefly hit that criterion. So it, it is an unusual event. That, that's very much not what we would usually see. Normally, you would see the vortex as being quite strong beforehand and then this huge deceleration, taking the winds to easterly for a few days and then a slow recovery. And in actual fact, the way this has gone is, is, is very weird. You know, interestingly, it's almost like it's, it's resembling what's happening down at the surface at the moment. There's been so much rainfall, but actually a lot of that water still hasn't really managed to filter through the system. So although we've had quite a dry spell of weather, albeit cold, there's been a lot of frozen water out there, even whether it's on a field or whatever else. Um, so any small event now is going to affect what's happening, you know, is going to affect water levels down the surface. So it is kind of worrying because... If the stratosphere is having a funny year or an odd year or it has been disrupted already and so it doesn't quite have the cohesion that it needs, you know, um, yeah, it's so, which also makes sense why the all the long range output that I've been looking at has been like wild, wet, windy, briefly cold, wild, wet, windy, briefly cold. It looks like that pattern is changeable. <laughs> it, it's certainly been swinging around a lot and, and you obviously have, you have this loud guy in the room which is El Nino shouting at the atmosphere. Uh, that is a big source of, of propagating waves through. So you, you, can, you have a bit of a, a boxing match between different sources of long range predictability there. So my question is, if you're a vesting man, what do you think is going to happen for the rest of the winter? Ooh. Well, the vortex is strengthening. Um, there's some signs of things that evolve a bit like the latter part of 1998, if I had to, if I had to bet. So the latter part of 1998 was a big El Nino year. Uh, it was also a situation where the vortex tried to weaken and then kind of backed off a bit. And so I, I would go for something like that, quite warm, maybe more in the way of southwesterlies uh, through through the latter part of the winter. Um, Maybe this will age terribly, but that that's what I would go for. I think this was this was the last the first part first half of January, first two thirds of January. That's the really cold part of the winter. I don't think we're going to go back to anything quite like that. I don't forecast for a living. Mm. It's certainly very difficult to get cold air in a planet that has warmed 
about one and a half degrees C above pre-industrial, especially when your source region of your cold air, the Arctic, has warmed four times faster than the global mean. Yeah. So, you know, even in my lifetime, I feel like northerlies don't have the potency they used to. And I feel like the reason why every winter people are kind of lose their minds looking for cold air is because it's it's so hard to get it and and one of the other reasons why we then come and talk about these extreme disruptions of the polar vortex and things like is it going to be the beast from the east and all those sorts of things is because it's just hard to get it to be cold for a long time it's harder than it used to be and and i think we're, we're kind of seeing that in the way we talk about it the the reason why you know it was it's been cold the last few days and there are headlines and all kinds of things in a way that wouldn't have been true in the 1960s it's because we're just we're kind of sitting in a progressively warming bathtub. A bit depressed now. <laughs> it was a bit. That was a bit depressing. It's, right. it's the reality, though, isn't it? God is like, man, what have we done? Like, what have we done? Why can't we do more? But as as you're talking, as as you were talking, I was thinking, do you know what? Somebody's going to make a great lecturer because you really bring the weather and climate to life, and like, you're, it was so engaging, and I was just like. You're going to have so many students being like, this is awesome. So, yeah. yeah. Thank I, you. I care. So we're going to leave the science for the moment until our next podcast, whenever we get to have Simon back on. But let's revisit our get to know me round and see what's changed there. So let's, I think we do have some new questions now. I think we have got a few extra ones. So we will cover the standard First one that we ask everyone, just to see if it may have changed. Mine's wavering a little bit. I'm swaying from autumn to spring, so it might have changed a bit. So what is your favourite season? Oh, you know, I think I can remember what I said last time. I think I said April to June. Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, I, I said I like winter earlier, but I, I, do, I do still like really like spring. But let's just go for, for traditional spring. Spring is nice. I am wavering more towards spring, which well, I don't like correct. to admit because Ash will then be like, I was right. But, you know, it's... I am wavering that way now a bit more. That's <laughs> the correct answer, Jim. If you had to choose between the beach or the mountains, what would you choose? The mountains every time. Have you got a favourite mountain? Oh, it depends where. Um, I, 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 in, in the Yorkshire Dales, I'm a big fan of Buckden Pike and Great Wernside, uh, which are both in the seven uh, low seven hundred meter um, summit, and there's a nice one just up the Hudson Valley from here. It's not particularly a mountain per se, but it's called Bull Hill uh, or Mount Taurus, and it's only four hundred or so meters if I remember correctly. But because it go rises from sea level, then you do the entire hike, and that that's nice. I do love a good hike. I do, especially if you got lovely weather oh i mean even in the rain i'll do a hike but yeah in the rain. yeah if you could have a superpower what would it be <laughs> oh to predict the weather three weeks in advance that's a good one <laughs> you'd be rich <laughs> yeah that's what, that's what i was thinking or to be able to predict exactly where there's going to be showers and thunderstorms oh do you know what i think if I had a superpower, I'd come up with another word for scattered showers. I just cannot think of a word to replace them. It's like the most perfect expression. What, what are the ways to, to describe them? Yeah, I don't know, I there's a few. 
you could say a few shower. I mean, a few and isolated there together. And you could say scattered. You could say occasional showers. You could say some showers. Yeah, but they're still not scattered. You know, there's very What's the opposite dim, you know... of a scattered shower. Hmm? What's the opposite of a scattered shower? I, it's just such a great description. Um, isolated. Yeah, isolated or a few showers. I mm. would say. But scattered to me is like you know, across the area. Like yeah. I don't know. There's just not a word to replace that. I I, you know. This is a really full weather forecasty question, like a really really weather forecasting conversation that we're having here. But also, mm. at what stage does a scattered shower become too scatter too frequent to be classified as scattered showers? I would say if the showers are more are more frequent than forty five minutes, I think they become frequent showers. Okay. So, like, I think the average person might be out. <laughs> this is my take on it. Frequent showers would be I can expect to get caught in a shower. Scattered showers means if I was out and about, I might get caught in one, but the, there's a uh, there is a likelihood that I will. And a few showers means I might not. Anyway, interesting psychological. Well, question. what I, if if I was going to make a comment on that, it would be maybe scattered showers doesn't need the word scattered, and it is implied. If you just said showers, maybe a few or widespread or frequent, but maybe scattered doesn't need it. Maybe scattered showers are just average amounts of showers. Hmm. But then that's the whole question. Mm. Does everybody know the difference between rain and showers? Yeah, that is a good question. This and then really sometimes, sometimes rather incorrectly, <laughs> <laughs> showers will become more frequent to make rain. Like, yeah, well, they merge into a longer spell of rain. Plums of debris occlusion. Anyway, we digress. <laughs> Let's continue on. Let's continue on. This is a real insight into like conversations that people in weather and climate have. <laughs> it is. <laughs> we'll get back to the get to know me around. Hang on two seconds. Let's have a little look at the questions here. Um, so, do you have a hidden talent? Oh, do I have a hidden? I don't know if I have a hidden talent. And maybe it's hidden to me as well. Well, I guess something that, like, so, like, do you play an instrument? No, unfortunately. Do you sing? N not, not, not to anyone other than myself. Um, do you draw? I sometimes, I sometimes, I tell you what, I sometimes write poems. So maybe, uh, maybe that's hidden. About what? Usually just kind of trying to encapsulate a view that I'm looking at so maybe I'm trying to draw a picture with words maybe that's my hidden talent I hadn't really yes. thought about that for a while there you go we've just found it I like that draw the draw a picture with words as well I really like that that's a nice way of thinking about it um I don't know if you've ever asked anyone this I mean, I've written it down on a bit of paper I don't know why but it's the best chocolate what in your opinion what is the <laughs> go-to chocolate <laughs> So you've had it's time in America chocolate. to know American chocolate. So this is a valid... Well, American thing. chocolate's terrible. Um, <laughs> it's a poor excuse for a sweet. Um, I, you know, the more, the more... I was thinking about this yesterday, actually. I'm not a big chocolate eater. That's one thing I should say. But I was thinking the other day about how much I could... Just like a standard bar of berry milk. I do... I am partial to a whisper. My chocolate bar is a yeah. twirl. Oh, that's that's a good one. Mm, it's like the perfect mix of like 
chocolate with just a tiny little amount of air and space to give the chocolate texture. Oh, I just it's a good one to dunk in tea, actually. I like to dunk chocolate in tea. I'm more of a galaxy person over Cadbury's, personally. So I actually prefer ripples, but it's a similar thing to a to a swirl. Well, if I'm Georgia Gemma. Or, or a Twix. Got a bit of biscuit in it as well. Oh, That's Twix lovely too. Yeah, but if I had to, it's a twirl. Like, it is a twirl. That, that's my... If you want, if you did something on me and you wanted to make off, you'd be able to it's a twirl I'd be like oh grand you're forgiven that's good to know that's good to know I mean we've never fallen out so I won't need to buy you more mm. twirls but <laughs> um and we'll ask this one as well just in case things might have changed if you could invite one person to dinner it can be anyone at all from any historical time frame who would it be I remember who I said last time I said Bono last time because I was reading his autobiography I think so. We were talking about this uh, at the pub the other day, and uh, I said I would invite David Tennant because I'd just been watching him as the Fourteenth Doctor, and uh, I just thought we'd have a good conversation about Doctor Who, and he's an enthusiastic guy. So yeah, David Tennant. He was a really good Doctor Who as well. I really liked him as Doctor Who. Yeah, my, my, probably my favourite of, of the modern era. Although I, I, I like Christopher Eccleston as well, but that's just uh, was the first one of the regenerated series in 2005. Yeah, I quite liked, I thought Matt Smith was really good as well. I did like him. Brilliant, yes. And then our final question, which we always ask everyone, and I always like to switch it up a little bit, but what is one thing that you wish everybody knew about the polar vortex? If everyone could just know one thing about it, what would it be? So this, if this was everybody, if I could get everybody, and that includes all the journalists who write articles about the polar vortex, it's that it's it's a constant thing in the stratosphere each winter. It is not something that it's not a polar vortex. It doesn't kind of come to you and give you cold like it sometimes gets reported in the US in particular. It's not like a polar vortex is going to hit Chicago. It's not that. That's what I would I would eradicate that. I would. That's what I would like everybody to know. It's just, it's a stratospheric thing. It's always there in the winter. It's the variability. It doesn't come and hit your house. I like that. Yeah. And we do love to personify stuff, don't we? And and make headlines. You can't, you know, it's all clickbait, isn't it? But there's one thing everyone loves talking about. It's the weather. Yeah. And uh, the controversial one as well is is how things like climate change and how Arctic warming in particular is influencing things like cold air outbreaks, the polar vortex, the jet stream, all these things often gets reported in a far more confident way than the science really suggests because it's dramatic, right? If you can say climate change is messing with cold air outbreaks in a way that would make them more frequent, that sounds really exciting. It makes a great headline. And indeed, there is some science and some people would strongly argue that that sort of variability is happening, but it often gets reported in a far more confident way than the science really says. And and, and so I, I'm always concerned that the public don't, aren't being treated fairly in a way and they're not being, not being correctly reported. You know, this science, some scientists say, and it might, and there is a theory or there's a hypothesis as opposed to you know things that we can say about the climate system with confidence like heat waves are hotter the earth is hotter 
CO2 is making this all happen. Yeah, that's a, a pet peeve in the wintertime when there's cold air outbreaks. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's a great point. It is really, really frustrating. I hadn't quite thought about that. That annoys me as well when they're talking about, or even storm names. I mean, they're brilliant, really useful and everything, but sometimes, yeah, do question what you read. Yes, and especially um, thinking about just as a comment about storm names. Of course, the, the wonderful thing that's wonderful in uh, italics that uh, a lot of tabloid writers like to do is look down the list of the names of the storms and make a headline about the next storm and name it before it happens. And of course, you don't know it's going to be named. And I think there's an argument there for saying, don't release the names. Yeah, yeah. And they can't do that. Yeah, you know, then they can't can't make them up. Yeah, I know, it's true. But I mean, I, I get uh, it's important to know that there are storms and they have names. And maybe that's why it was done initially, just to kind of generate some awareness of it. However, they do have yeah. in in communicating bad weather not always but you know i think people most people now are aware if you know there's a stormy weather sort of you know stormy weather being many things but yeah weather that might impact travel and that type of stuff anyway we totally digress here Gemma, thank you so much simon for joining us again on the podcast we have learned loads again it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast so thank you so much for saying yes again i'm very sure that we will have you on again no doubt about that there'll be lots of stuff that we can talk to you about um but in the meantime if we don't talk to you before you're being moved back to the uk all the best with that all the best in your new role as well and as we say you're going to be a really great lecturer because you really do bring the weather and climate to life and make it really really interesting so all the best with that yeah very lucky students Thank you. Really appreciate it. And thanks for having me on again. If you have listened to this episode and you have loved it, we would love it that you would subscribe, rate and review the podcast. And if you can share the podcast as well, it allows other people to find us. And our big mission here is to share our love of the weather with as many people as we can. So that would be amazing. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, we are for the love of weather on X, formerly Twitter. It's a little bit of a mouthful there. We are the number four love of weather. Um, and Simon, if people want to find you on social media, where can they find you? I generally go under the handle of Simon Lee WX on platforms such as the, the artist formerly known as Twitter. Uh, my website, simonleewx.com. It's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me there. Simon's Twitter feed is excellent. So you should definitely. It's so awesome. Formerly X, formerly Twitter. His Twitter feed is as amazing. Is your, you should definitely your, go to do that. And your LinkedIn. That's amazing as well. Uh, I, I, I should I should tweet less. I have too much to do now. But yes, no, I appreciate that people enjoy looking at it. It's definitely great. Go and check that out. Um, and as always, we just really hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more. Thanks for listening. Bye bye.